I'd like to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to join me in Exodus chapter 20. We had a great week here at church. Good week of VBS. I would like to encourage you to remember to keep on praying for the church because oftentimes we're all in our own lanes and we only see what we see, but God has grown the church on all fronts and we saw little ones place their faith in Jesus for salvation and countless hours volunteered and served this week and that is an awesome thing to see and to be a part of. And I know as has already been mentioned, we thank God We know that we cannot legislate morality, but we certainly don't have to condone and enable open sin either, and I thank God for His direction and protection in that. I was thinking this morning, there will be a day when 6,000 plus years worth of believers' voices will join together and sing, worthy is the Lamb. That's an incredible scale to meditate on and imagine. That time is not here yet. But what is necessary, and I believe is a clarification on my calling, is that we must continue to simply declare the revealed truth that we have in Scripture from God. There's a verse, I think we're perhaps all familiar with it. It's one of Solomon's Proverbs. It says this, it's Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where there is no vision, the people perish, But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Oftentimes, I have heard that verse, and they have taught me that vision there is a reference to goals. That a church or an individual should have goals, they should have objectives. And certainly, I think if anyone is going to move forward, they should have vision in the sense of goals and objectives. But the word as it is used in that verse Where there is no vision, the people perish. That word vision communicates oracles. Revelation from God. When it says the people perish, it's emphasized in the Hebrew. There is basically no moral restraint. People are deprived of moral restraint. It is Romans chapter 1. It is the declaration of the degradation of society. And the key integer, according to Proverbs 29, 18, is the declaration of the truth. Because perhaps I could amplify that verse by reading it in this way. Where there is no revelation from God, the people are deprived of moral restraints. One commentator said of that verse this, and it helped me, where divine revelation and the faithful preaching of the sacred testimonies are neither reverenced nor attended, the ruin of that land is at no great distance. And that verse ends with this, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he, go how it may with others, he shall be saved. That's a powerful thought to me. You take the declared, revealed truth of God from any congregation, remove it from any culture, society, or nation, and what you will find is, in short order, people will be deprived of moral restraint because they are deprived of divine authority and the revealed truth of the Word of God. Even Jesus in Luke eleven twenty eight 28 said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the Word of God and keep it. So our calling is clear even in this day and in the midst of this progressive 
society, anti-Christ world in which we live, to continue to declare the truth as it is revealed in God's word unapologetically. It's not about entertainment. It's not even about staying relevant. It's about continuing to declare what God has already said. The problem is we don't have an appetite for it, and we don't have an appetite for it because of our sin. We desire what God does not want for us. A writer said this. I think this was helpful. He said, we look at temptation that cannot make our lives better, and we think that would make my life better. He said, here's what happens to us. The Ten Commandments point towards Sodom and Gomorrah and warn us you don't want to go there, yet we look over at that barren wasteland and think, that must be our Garden of Eden, and off we go. How painfully true that is of us. We live in a world that does not desire to have the revealed truth of God. There is utter confusion where there is no authority of Scripture. And so we have been revisiting the Ten Commandments because we are aware where there is no revelation from God, the people are deprived of moral restraints. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And so I direct your attention to one verse, Exodus 20 and verse 14, where Moses, as he is communicating the law directly from God, writes this, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, if you were nervous or thinking, how do you get 40 minutes out of thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery is not much easier. Let's stop for a minute and really dig into the Word of God and find out what God's expectations are for us in this regard. And the first question that we must answer is, what is adultery? What does it mean to commit adultery? Well, the simplest answer is that adultery is marital infidelity. There's no real confusion on that. Do you realize that infidelity remains the number one reason that married relationships and even a step further, unmarried relationships end all across the world. From the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, all through the tapestry of Scripture, God emphasizes and is honored by faithfulness, fidelity. That's fact. Adultery then strictly defined would be immoral relations between a married man and a woman who is not his wife or between a married woman and a man who is not her husband. And adultery is specifically sin because it directly violates the marriage covenant. So it is clear on the surface that the purpose of this commandment is to protect marriage. Adultery ultimately breaks the marriage covenant which is a promise that is made before God. When Jesus was on earth, he took a look at society around him and he said this in Mark 8, 38, this adulterous and sinful generation. If Jesus looked at society in his day and spoke of it by saying, this is an adulterous and a sinful generation, imagine how he would assess our day and age. This sin is clearly serious to God. I have, as we have studied out the Ten Commandments, continued to try to communicate the severity of the punishment for breaking of these commandments in the Old Testament nation of Israel so that we might become clear with how God actually viewed this sin. Here's what we read in Leviticus 20 and the 
verse, second part of verse 10. The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. There's no mistaking what God says. Now, I want to be very careful, and I want to be very clear. Make no mistake, we are not bound by this law, nor the punishment that God prescribed in Exodus and in Leviticus, because here and now, thank God, we are under grace. But the rule and the reality of God's expectation is intact. In the New Testament, in the Greek, there is a counterpart for the word that is used here in the law, thou shalt not commit adultery. And in fact, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the believers in Corinth, he says this in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, know ye not. Basically, this is foundational truth. Do you not understand that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he says this, be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind make it into the kingdom of God. So you're not to think that if I have ever committed this sin, I am woefully lost and will never attain the kingdom of God. But this is a clear reality that those who do not turn to Christ, who are known by these characteristics of sin, are not in. There is, coupled with the word adultery in the New Testament, oftentimes the word fornication. That is the Greek word pornia. It's where we would derive the word pornography in our day. What that communicates is illicit thoughts, immorality, immoral activities, relationships, even among unmarried people. And here's Paul's advice for dealing with fornication. He says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication. Are you aware then that flight is an effective spiritual strategy? Sometimes we don't engage, we simply run. That is what Joseph did when confronted by Potiphar's wife and tempted. And the Apostle Paul on multiple occasions encourages us to run away from sin. So here's what we grasp. As far back as the beginning of the revelation of God, we realize that there is a declaration toward moral purity. It's inescapable. Now, as we have seen when we have studied the Ten Commandments, they, generally speaking, rule out the most extreme form of a sin. But it is evidence as we unpack it in Scripture that by implication, they also rule out all of the lesser sins that lead to that extreme manifestation of sin. And so I could say with true conviction that this commandment rules out and forbids everything that leads up to or causes adultery. Let me say it this way. As Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, as believers, as those that are born again, we are called to purity. We are not called to purity because we are repressed. We are not repressed. We have liberty and freedom in Christ. In fact, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We are not called to moral purity because we are repressed. We pursue moral purity because we are unwilling to settle for illicit, fleshly, immoral pleasures that rob us from the reality of what God has actually gifted us in marriage. 
If I were to put a positive spin on it, which helps us sometimes when we're studying Scripture, I would maybe say it this way. The seventh commandment requires husbands to love and to nurture their love for their wives and wives to do the same emotionally and spiritually and physically with their husbands. We grasp what adultery is. The severity of God's commandments are always attached to a reality concerning God. There's a divine baseline that allows God to institute the mandate. When we read, thou shalt not kill, we realize that God directly attached that to the reality that all are created in the image of God, thou shalt not kill. So why would God be so severe when talking about adultery? Why would that be one of the big ten? Well, the reality is there's oneness in marriage that we have to scripturally understand. Understanding the oneness that God intends in marriage will help us to grasp the severity of the sin of adultery. Back in the Garden of Eden, we read of the first marriage. And what we know is that this is clearly God's intention. Not just for Adam and Eve, but for all time because he'll reference leaving father and mother. And there was no father and mother other than Adam and Eve. This is a historical principle. This is God's expectation. Here's what he says in Genesis 2.18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And there are some intervening verses, and God creates Eve from Adam's rib. And we read this in verse 23. And Adam is now assessing this. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now this is foundational. This is so elementary. But it was God that brought Adam and Eve together. Adam did not have an app that he downloaded onto his stone tablet to find her. There were only two. And the fact is, Eve had incredible lung capacity at that point. She could have run from Adam as far as she wanted to run. She was probably faster than anyone in this room. She could have gotten away. They were brought together by God. You cannot escape that as a reality. God not only brought them together... After he created man and woman, he brings them together, which indicates to us that he is ordaining the institution of marriage. He is creating it. He is calling it sacred. It is sanctified. It is set apart. This is something that God did. Husbands, he says, leave father and mother and cleave unto your wife. Which means you are now changing and this authority structure that was once under the parents is now you there with your wife. Doesn't mean to dishonor, but it certainly is a changing of the guard. Husbands, leave father and mother. And there is some of the foundational marriage advice you could give to any man. Get away, get out from under. Mom and dad are no longer telling you what to do all the time with your marriage. Some women are like, thank God he said that publicly. I think it is also a declaration for mommies and daddies to let them go. 
Sometimes you stick your nose where your nose doesn't belong, not according to me or the personalities of your children, but according to God. Let them go. It's a two-lane street, and when one side's blocked, it's damning to marital relationships. So I say, in the earshot of my children, go away. Get out. Go on and lead as God says. Neither of my kids are in here. My wife's even out of the state. It's probably why I'm saying things like I'm saying today. From the very beginning of creation, it's clear that to commit adultery was to violate the sanctity of marriage. One said this, the Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. The male and the female were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on a sexual level, but totally combined. Get this emphasis. The monstrosity of fornication is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. There is clear oneness in marriage. Jesus addresses this. The Pharisees, who were always very careful and explicit about adhering to the letter of the law, are asking Jesus about divorce, about marriage, and Jesus responds, and I want you to listen to the response of Jesus in Matthew 19. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning, this is a reference back to Genesis, made them male and female? And said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, Jesus speaking, they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. I've done enough weddings where I have that part memorized. Because you say that in the marital ceremony. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. I think this is such vital scripture because in this, in the New Testament, by the mouth of Jesus, we have the addressing of male and female being married together, becoming one flesh. This isn't just Old Testament, antiquated, ancient truth. This is Jesus speaking and addressing the Pharisees in this way. And he is talking about the idea of cleaving. Cleave is an important word to understand. It's the strongest possible bond. It communicates that you are unbreakably connected together, glued, welded, pursuing hard after each other to be united in mind and will and body and spirit and emotion. Again, let me practically speak to married people and give you this sound advice based on scripture. Take your hand off the door of the fire escape. You're in it. Stay in it. And forgiveness and grace are necessitated, but there is a true, genuine welding. So strong is the union, Jesus says, they shall be one flesh. So I can say with veracity that the breaking of the marriage bond destroys something that is divinely made. In the book of Genesis, there is emphasis on man's action. He shall leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife. 
When Jesus speaks, there is emphasis on God's action. What God hath put together, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. You and I, as much as we have no right to take life from someone, for it was God that gave them life, neither do we have the right to dissolve something that God put together, that is divinely made. According to Jesus, it's God who brings people together in holy wedlock. Emphasis on lock. You say, dude, I want to unlock. I wish I had Eve's lung capacity. I want to run. There is hope. There is help. Stay in. God's math is one plus one equals one. Thou shalt not commit adultery. We grasp the severity and the reality of what that is. It is there because of the oneness of marriage. We cannot escape that. But one of the most vital integers that we can live by in order to succeed in this regard is the necessity of purity. It's just necessary that we are morally pure. We're all impacted by this potential sin, every single one of us. Somebody just said to me this morning, Pastor, you need to be careful because you've been in Genesis talking about creation and males and females, and you talked about thou shalt not kill in reference to abortion, and now you're getting on marriage. We're not going to have a church after this if you keep saying stuff like this, but it's amazing people keep joining, and you keep coming back until we get to the lying part in which all of you are going to have to repent. But think about how clear the truth is concerning this, and let me just address it in this regard. Jesus is preaching or teaching on the mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think that Jesus intentionally went into it as the Sermon on the Mount. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching on the mount, and he says something that is earth-shattering. He says something that basically loads upon all of us the egregious weight of our sin. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And everybody said, Amen. And then in verse 28, Jesus said, But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Surprisingly, there were probably no amens on the hillside. The sin in that moment is traced to its origin. You see, in that moment, Jesus is talking about the heart and the mind. In other words, it can be a creation in the mind. It can be a silent, secret sin that no one else but you and God in heaven know about. Now, I'll be very careful. I want to just say, I know there is the reality that pornography is very rampant in our world. I grasp that. And it can be that you have set all kinds of parameters and boundaries to stay away from that. And I applaud that, encourage that. But we must admit that there is the reality of the theater of the mind. And without any imagery to aid, we can still be guilty of the secret sin in our minds. And I speak to this as a reality because this is a declaration of the sinfulness of our humanity, of our being. The law is a school teacher that reveals to us just how sinful we are. It's a mirror that we look in and we see how spotted, speckled, and dirty we are. And if this was truly 
punished by death, it even shines the light on the reality that the wages of sin is death. I cannot possibly be righteous in and of myself. Thank God for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's even emphasized further because James says this in James 4, 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? As a believer, a Christ follower, a child of God, don't divide your love between this temporal world and God in heaven. A man, a woman cannot serve two masters. There is an adulterous aspect to that. It's enmity with God. The Apostle Paul was writing and it's fact that adultery covers a wide spectrum. That it knocks on the door of everyone's heart. It is clearly a work of the flesh. Galatians 5.19 Now the works of the flesh are manifest. In essence, here's how you know this is a work born of the old nature of the flesh. Here's how you see it. Adultery. Fornication. Uncleanness. Lasciviousness. Now don't worry about uncleanness and lasciviousness right now, but let's couple adultery and fornication together and declare this as fact. If you wonder whether or not you are behaving according to your flesh in that adulterous moment or that act of fornication, which is even the illicit thought, you can grasp the reality that you are not under the influence of the spirit, but rather being dictated to by the passions of your flesh. So what do I do, Paul? He says this in Galatians 5, 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So there's a battle within us. It's raging within us. Paul, I don't have much in common with Paul the Apostle. He's a great preacher, an incredible writer, good missionary, good church planner. One thing I have discovered is I am as good at sinning as Paul is, so there's at least that. I can sin like him. Here's what he said in Romans 7, 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Who's going to set me free from this constant battle? This is a truth that he's communicating. We are engaged in this battle. It is real. It is raging. Winning it is not going to be easy. It begins with determination and commitment, and we must walk in the Spirit. He did not say, get five minutes of the Spirit. He did not say, get a taste of the Spirit. He said, walk in the Spirit. And the very word communicates all that surrounds my life. As I go through my life, I will be depending on the Spirit of God. It is that walk and it is that life and only that life that will protect me from fulfilling the lusts and the desires of my flesh. An author said this, holiness will never sneak into your life. Holiness will never sneak into your life. Moral purity is not a coincidence. It is a pursuit Holiness is a pursuit. Moral purity is a pursuit. Holiness and moral purity are never going to sneak into your life. You must be decisive and committed and willful and under the influence of walking in the Spirit. That's the only way that will happen. You say, well, this is the worst news I've ever heard. 
Because you don't know that my past is littered with this stuff. You don't know that I already have some scars and I already have some guilt and I'm already wounded by this very thing. Well, I want you to know a story from the New Testament that will greatly help you. I love when we read an Old Testament command which was punishable by death. And then we get to see Jesus in the New Testament interact with that punishable offense by death and give grace, and we see him offer forgiveness. The thief, the malefactor on the cross is promised paradise, though we have in the Ten Commandments that you should not steal. We have written in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, and the Pharisees as nefarious and twisted and savage in their attacks on Jesus were, come to Jesus, and we read this in John 8, 4. They say unto him, Master, this woman, indicating that they have her there now, was taken in adultery. Note the next phrase, in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? Now I happen to believe that this was a setup by the Pharisees. I think the Pharisees were working to expose Jesus. One of the reasons I can say that is if this woman was caught in the very act and physically drug into the presence of Jesus, where is the man in this story? Why was he not also drug before Jesus? Probably because he was complicit in this setup. Now think for a moment, and again I won't go too far, about the shame and the embarrassment that this woman must have felt in this moment. Perhaps she's partially disrobed. No doubt in my mind she is being publicly shamed. Her head is down, probably sobbing and weeping. And the Pharisees have looked at Jesus and said, Moses said, We should kill her. What do you say? We've caught her in the very act, red-handed. We have the evidence. What are you going to do about this Jesus? And John 8, 6. This they said, tempting him, that they might accuse him. But Jesus stooped down. And with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. That means Jesus was ignoring them. Which is also probably a good spiritual thing for us to learn from Jesus. Some people just need to be ignored. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto him, He that is without sin among you, let him cast or first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Now, If I could give a commercial for expository preaching, I want to do it right now. One of the great joys of just going verse by verse by verse is that it enlightens scriptural study for us. We're going to study thou shalt not bear false witness. One of the reasons that was very important to the judicial system was if you were going to accuse somebody of some sin, you better be telling the truth because you were going to be expected to participate in executing the punishment, which meant very truthfully, according to Deuteronomy, that you would be the one to cast the first stone. So you not only better be telling the truth, you better not also be guilty of the same thing. And so when Jesus says, 
cast the first stone if you are guiltless, it leads us to believe that he is scrawling in the dirt the sins of these Pharisees. And they exit, beginning at the eldest and down to the least, because perhaps in their minds they had not carried out the act, though many no doubt had. They thought they were getting away with this secret sin, only to realize that even God knows all that's going on, even if it's only in their minds, and they were in the presence of God, though they did not believe that. And so now we have separated all of the accusers, And we're down to Jesus, the creator in the flesh. We're down to the communicator of the law and a sinner caught in the very act. What will Jesus do? And we know the story. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man Lord, and that's an important thing. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Oftentimes I have said, and I won't elaborate on it, but I believe that if we, or if I pastorally interacted with someone caught in known sin as Jesus did, it would probably cost me my pastorate. But what Jesus is doing here is he's communicating grace. What, what, what is being taught to us is this. Jesus Christ did not dismiss her sin. He will die for her sin. In this moment, Jesus the righteous judge wanted to forgive and so he did. All the while he knew that that was one of the sins multiplied by all humanity that he would die on the cross to pay the penalty for. The penalty for her sin was death. And Jesus said, in effect, I will pay that penalty for you. He did not dismiss her sin. He will die for her sin. This is not an easy or cheap forgiveness. This will cost Jesus everything. He did not say to her, it's all right. Don't worry. Just go on living as you were living. He says, in effect, it's all wrong. Go out And if I am indeed Lord, then stop living the life of an adulteress. Jesus Christ has always been intensely interested, not only in what a person has been, but in what a person can become. At this moment, I have no doubt, like all of us, you have a past, but with Christ, you have a future. The beauty of grace is exactly that. Do you realize what your sin mandates that God, the righteous judge, do and carry out according to it? Death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through and only through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can you imagine that as Jesus hung between the two malefactors who were absolutely unquestioningly worthy of execution according to the law, when Jesus offers paradise, he does so at great expense because when Jesus Christ lets out that final cry and says, it is finished, he is declaring that according to God's standard of righteousness, the debt for sin has been paid in full. And all of us who are rife with sin, savagely wicked, vile and evil, wretched and worm-like, can come 
and grovel at the foot of the cross and confess and repent of our sins and our sin is paid for by Jesus and his righteousness is applied to us. And when I stand before God, the holy judge, I don't stand there as Chris Edwards and thank God for that because I wouldn't last a second. I'd be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. But I stand there robed in the righteousness of Jesus. And when he sees me, he doesn't see my sin, for he's cast that as far as the east is from the west. He sees the righteousness of his only begotten son. That's stunning. And the Bible tells me that I can confess my sins, and if I will confess my sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness because I have an advocate with the Father who never takes one day in court off Jesus. And Satan, who is the accuser, is standing in front of God, and there may be a time where he says, have you seen Chris? Have you seen what a louse? Have you seen what a sinner Chris is? Have you seen how vile and how wicked his emotional state and his mental state and his physical state is? Have you seen his sin? In that moment when the accuser makes his argument, my advocate Jesus simply raises his nail-pierced hand, and when God, the holy judge, sees Jesus speak on my behalf, he looks back at the accuser and says that has been forgiven that has been forgiven I don't have to go through life feeling useless and beat down and guilt ridden and defeated I'm forgiven in Christ so when the Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery it shouts it at us and we feel like we're the worst people on earth And we grasp the severity of it. And we grasp the necessity of moral purity. And we know it's a lifelong pursuit. Thank God for forgiveness. I'll close by just reading marriage advice from the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 5. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverences her husband. Live pure. Why? Because thou shalt not commit adultery. But what if I have? There's forgiveness and hope in Jesus. No marriage is too far gone that it cannot be restored by the grace of Jesus Christ. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is gracewaycharlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.